welcome to the iCode Media Podcast, where we help you become the best eye care provider you can be. I'm your host for today, Ted McElroy. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Andrea Knuff. Andrea is one of the brightest, hardest working people I know of in optometry today. She is a speaker, a practitioner who is in the office most every day and specializes in primary care optometry and also ocular surface disorder. She saw ocular surface disease being a disease state that optometry needed to embrace well before many of our colleagues did. I'm sure you're going to find by the end of this conversation that this is a very insightful view in how we see our profession moving. If you haven't done so, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button and give us a review and a rating on your particular podcast player. And as always, please support those who help support us. As optometrists, we're problem solvers. I always take the time to ask specific questions of my patients to ensure they don't have symptoms that they're not associating with their eyes or perhaps think is not something I can or will address. I found that asking the right questions to get the bottom of their needs is important. Questions like, how do your contact lenses feel at the end of the long day? What time of day do you take your lenses out? What time of day do you wish you could take your lenses out? On a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your contacts? Questions like these allow us to solve problems for our patients that they may not know how to tell us about, resulting in happier patients and more demonstrable value for our services. It also keeps our practice at the forefront of a patient's mind with new technology, and they hear about that technology first from us, which is what I think they expect. Check out the show links for how Cooper Vision is helping us be proactive with these types of conversations. So Andrea, I really am very flattered you spent some time with me this evening. I mean, you've got a very busy family between your husband, Larry, and you and your child, Wells. And uh, so thank you for being on the podcast with us today. Um, thank you so, for having me. I really appreciate being here. So thank you. My pleasure. Uh, so I want to sort of get back in a little bit of background for those that don't know you. And I'm sure there's not very many people who don't know who you are. But tell us a little bit about your origin story and how you came to where you are today. Well, um, I graduated from PCO in 2007 and decided to go into a residency, and I did a residency at Omni Eye Services under the beloved Paula Janium that everyone knows, um, and after I finished my residency, I went into private practice for a bit but really missed disease, and so I decided to go back into ocular disease and and work at Omni. So I was at Omni for about three years, um, and my title is consultative um, eye care. So I didn't you know, what what does that exactly mean? And it actually meant what I would do was um, during cataract surgeries, I would sit there with the patients and discuss the premium lens options that they had and pretty much do all of the preoperative things before they would go into cataract surgery and help them determine their best lens option. Um, So I was really mostly on the cataract side. I was also there for um, any of the other optometrists within the area that had issues, um, referrals that were coming in, questions about a patient or a post-op that they needed answers on. So um, it was really fun. I enjoyed working with our group of optometrists really within the referral network for AMI. And, um, and then after about three years, I decided that I really wanted to go out on my own and go into private practice. 
And so I started my private practice about six years ago. So I'm going into my sixth year right now. And we started cold, and, um, and then here, here I am today. So, you know, you were with Paul two different times, and, and uh, as I can't imagine there's very many people on the planet who don't know Paul, who Paul Jamian is and what he has done for our profession. And, I mean, he's touched your life. He's made touched my life in ways that I, I couldn't imagine my career being not just, even if I've never known him before, but to also know him, it was a really nice experience. I spent three months working with him as an extern, uh, which I jokingly tell, and not so jokingly, was three of the hardest months of my entire life. But mm-hmm. still was a, a great experience to have and to learn as much as I did. So the time that you spent there, what did you bring from that experience into the practice that you currently have? Well, I think... Paul taught me everything I know, really. I was so blessed to be able to work underneath him and really with some amazing surgeons. And um, and I really enjoyed teaching uh, the students. So now going into my practice, I think I've been able to really kind of combine primary eye care with disease as well as, as I've been growing, teach my staff. Um, I have had three employees that have been interested in optometry. One that just got in and started in August, one that is a technician for me that um, is currently an undergrad, but considering optometry. So it's been really nice to be able to teach as well um, to them. But I think everything that I've learned at Omni has really just helped me grow as a practitioner. And I've been able to pass a lot of that on to my associate doctor. So it's just really been wonderful for the growth of my practice. And I mean, I think, and I think we'll probably get into a little bit about what my practice is about, because I I really decided when I was going to go into private practice that I had, I needed to define my business model. And so actually, when I decided to build the business, I pretty much based it more on um, high end eyewear and dry eye. And so it it wasn't all the disease that I had been engulfed in for so long. It was more just tailoring to the to a different population of patients, really. So um, I've been able to kind of tie in my author disease background with being able to have kind of a, a high end, more optical boutique feel. So why did you decide to specialize so intensely on? those particular aspects, the high-end side of your optical and your dry eye practice? What what was it that drove you to those decisions? Well, I've always had a love for dry eye, and not everybody loves dry eyes, but I really do. And, and actually, when I was at Omni, um, in about 2011, I went to Aspirus with one of our surgeons, and that's when the Lipiflow had been launched, launched, and I saw them performing a procedure. And I said, I want to do that. And so I, t- I went, actually went to Paul and I said, I want to create a dry eye center. With Omni being more of a referral center, it didn't really fit um, because most ODs already treat their own dry eye. So it wasn't like I needed to have people referred in for dry eye specifically. So um, the more I thought about it, I knew when I went out into my own practice that I was going to incorporate that somehow. So um, it's, it's, it was funny because at Ascaris at the time, they weren't even marketing to ODs. It was really 
mainly to ophthalmology, and um, I, had, I don't even think it was on optometry's radar just yet. So it was just really interesting to me. I thought, you know, we could definitely do that. It's, it's a 12-minute procedure. We could do that in an office, and so I, I just really became interested in it. So I knew that that was an aspect of my practice that I wanted to implement at some point. But I think when you're deciding to start a practice, especially cold, when you're buying something, you kind of already know what that the person before you has built and you know your demographics and your patient base. But for me, I had no idea. So I think what's important when you're starting cold is knowing your demographics and also considering your age. So at the time, I was 31 when I was opening the practice and then I knew a lot of my patients were going to be probably my age because we all kind of, it's, it's as you grow and I think as you age, your patients age with you. And so yep. I, um, I was considering that. And so what did a lot of 30-somethings want when it comes to eye care? And I knew it was going to be really neat pairs of glasses that they could wear and contact lenses. And so it just so happened that that's exactly sort of what we built, but I had just a kind of more of a love for fashion and the, the interest of um, independent frame lines and the design of the frames. And I think now um, people wear glasses like they wear their watches. You know, we, you don't really need, you know, a watch anymore. We have our phones, we can see what time it is, but people right. you know, wear a watch because it says Rolex or it says, um, you know, certain brand names. So I, I knew that people cared about accessories that way. And so I just started kind of learning a little bit more about the optical side and really wanted to build more of a high-end practice. Um, and then I took a look at the demographics around my area and realized that I could do this. And I thought I would miss more of the medical model. And I think in the beginning for the first few years, I didn't see, of course, not as much medical as I've been accustomed to, but um, now as we've been in practice longer and as I'm aging, we're seeing more and more medical and I'm, I'm able to specialize and, and really have dug into dry eye, especially, which now we know dry eye affects patients of all ages. So um, I was able to kind of build my practice on those two things specifically. Now, since you started looking at dry eye as being your your main focus in in pathology, um, how how has the dry eye um, patient changed? Have they gotten younger? Have you started noticing it to be? I mean, or has it been more of a certain demographic of socioeconomic level? Certain what what things do you see trend wise when you're looking at dry eye patients now? I think that dry eye is an epidemic. And I remember uh, recently just listening to one of Chris Wolf's podcasts, and he said there's 70% of patients that don't even realize they have dry eyes. And so I think the youngest patient that I've treated um, <clears throat> with a lipoflow was 22. And the oldest patient I've treated was in her 80s, almost 90. So I think it, it's there's a huge spectrum now and it's affecting so many people just with all of the devices and staring at screens all day long. So um, for me, 
I don't, I check everyone for dry eye, no matter who. So I'm, I'm looking for, before they even have the symptoms, I'm really questioning them as to, you know, if they're experiencing anything. We don't use like a speed questionnaire, but we basically address it on the front end um, pretty much whenever they come in for just a regular eye exam. So I don't wait for a chief complaint. I just kind of attack it head on and we test every single patient that walks in pretty much 18 and older. Uh, we do a non-contact tear breakup time on them. And then if I see that their score is low, I will just mention it in the exam room and it starts the conversation from there. And then it's just by doing that, we've been able to just sort of grow our dry eye population. And I feel like we're really making a difference and helping those patients by being able to treat them. And um, it's been pretty amazing. One of the things that you taught me when we were talking about it early on, I mean, I was, I always considered myself to be a relatively early adopter. And I, I, I am just, I mean, you're a much even more early adopter than I am on a lot of technologies. I think, I can't, uh, there's at least three or four pieces of technology I've got in my office that you had first, you know, and I always felt like I was the guy who had stuff first, but you had them before I did. So, you know, having all this technology that you've got in your office and how does that set you apart from, from other practitioners when it comes to how your patients and guests view you? Well, I think that every area is different. So for me, I had to focus on technology. So I, I have to have these certain pieces of equipment to really um, distinguish me from other practices within my area because there's a ton of them in this, because I'm in the midtown Atlanta. So there, I have a, a Warby Parker three miles one way and another Warby Parker two miles one way. So I really have to do something to set myself above everybody else and, and help patients understand why they want to come to me. And so every time they come in, never fails. They always comment on the technology that we have. So maybe my technology is going to be different than a practice that's in a rural area in Georgia somewhere. Maybe um, you don't necessarily need all that to really technically prove yourself to the patient. Um, but for me, it just kind of helps reiterate. And I can say, hey, this machine says that you have dry eyes whereas you don't have to go in there and do fluorescein and sit there and say, you have dry eyes, but they, they, for my patients, I think they trust more of a, a substantial measurement and they can see it. And so because I've invested early in all of these pieces of equipment, I think it's helped me to just continue to grow and kind of build that side of things. So um, I do consider myself an early adopter, although Sometimes I'm a little a little hesitant and I'll wait for a few people to do things a little bit before me <laughs> just to see how, how it works out. But when it comes to technology and it comes to my vision, if I know that it's something that's going to bring my practice value, my patient's value, and it, it, it's in line with what I'm trying to achieve, then I will purchase that piece of equipment. I think that's what some of our colleagues don't do enough in some cases, and, and they just kind of wait almost a little too long to buy something because if they did it on the front end, then they could, you know, really help to grow that and generate that business and get to that point where it, it just makes everything easier, just explaining to the patient. And, and really for me, it's just 
I sit there and I show them their measurements and I present it to the patient and they, they're the ones ultimately that make the decision if they want to ha have a treatment. So I just feel like I'm doing the right thing by having all of the, um, the data points in front of me that they can see. One of the challenges I think, I mean, and you were right as far as the technology is concerned, but I, I would argue that it doesn't matter where you're located. I think the technology is going to be crucial. Um, in a rural setting like me, sometimes that technology is crucial because I can't just send them across town for somebody else who has technology that I don't have. So I've right. got to have that just to be able to protect my guest. But how do you assess this twenty-five dollars to $50,000 piece of equipment that you're going to put into your practice to decide that's what you want to spend your money on? I actually have a simple solution. <laughs> if I know it's something that's going to better me and the way I practice and my patients, then if I decide to purchase that piece of equipment and decide to finance it, then if I can make the finance payment plus make one extra dollar on that patient, I mean, or on, on that test, then I, I purchase it. So it just, if it's something that will help me just build my practice by $1, I'll do it. So that's how we've always decided to just go ahead and go for it. But you know it is always going to be a lot more than $1. I mean, I'm not trying to say that the money is the important part, but I mean, let's face right. it, I mean, this technology is not cheap. It is not inexpensive. And some of the technology that we bring in our practice, literally, it, it's driving more efficiency, but it's not necessarily bringing money into the practice. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, we've, we've sat and uh, Mick Kling is one of our dear friends for you and I, and, you know, we've heard him talk about the different things you can sit down and decide, is it more efficiency? Is it, you know, what is it going to bring more revenue or is it going to actually improve the health benefits for that guest? And I think we sort of all go on those same kind of technique and topics, um, you know, but Lipaflow, going back to that one, I mean, you were in on the very early ground stages on that one. And I'm still amazed at when I finally have a guest that we've told them what's going on. We've, you know, recommended it and then the next year we've recommended it again and then the third year we've recommended that third time and they finally go okay and they it's amazing what they how they are when they're back at that one week visit i mean are you right. seeing that same kind of result oh definitely and and now i'm seeing the ones that i treated early on they'll call up and say i'm ready for my lipid flow within six months to a year it depends on obviously the amount of dropout that the patient has in the glands, but uh, most of the time now it's, it's a no-brainer, especially for the ones I've already treated, and so you'll find that again once they feel start feeling relief. I've even noticed that on year two, if they have another treatment, it just gets better and better and better. So I, I had a patient actually who was a dry-eyed blogger, and he had been all over the world to see specialists um, I think he went to Johns Hopkins. I mean, he was just could not find any relief. And so he came in and luckily had just lived in Atlanta and found me, I think, online. And we have finally got him to a point now where he doesn't have to blog anymore. He's, he's stopped. He's symptom-free. And so he's basically shut down his blog and said, I no longer have anything to say. And, and he said, last time I saw him, actually, we just did a look of flow on him again. I think we've done three. 
um, he said, I just, I felt overwhelmed. I was getting so many questions about dry eye. And he said, I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor. So I felt like I couldn't give out free advice anymore at this point. So he just said, I, I didn't feel qualified. Um, but there are so many people in need and he has sent me handfuls of patients just by word of mouth. Maybe you should buy his blog. I know. You know? <laughs> I told him I wanted to interview him and uh, get, a, get a video of him saying that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, it's an incredible thing of having a guest give you or give a recommendation for you. And it's so flattering, obviously. But just the bigger part, and I'm, I know this is you because I know you so well, it is really about how did that quality of life change for that person? You know, and that's really what it comes down to. I mean, how, how did, how did, I mean, this guy's obviously, he, his got so much better. He stopped blogging about what his problem was. And that's, that's incredible. Yeah. And I think all you can do is what you've done. If they choose not to do a treatment, you just continue every year. Hey, your levels are low again. Let's do another evaluation. Let's look at your glands. Oh, look at this one's atrophy. We need to probably do it. Are you sure you don't? You know, I just treat every patient like they're a family member and say, I would do this if I were you because we don't want your glands to look like grade three and be able to kind of show them that. Um, I think it makes a big impact, and that's why I think our success rate is, is so high. So on average, how often, how many times are you having to tell somebody before they finally go, okay, I'm going to do this? That's tough to say. Um, a lot of people, it, it always surprises me. I'll sit there and think, okay, they're going to say no, or they're, they're going to just go home and think about it, and they'll say, okay, when can we do this? And if I have time that day after I've done the dry eye evaluation, I'll do it. Um, if I don't have time, then we just reschedule them for a uh, just just the treatment itself. So um, it's really hard to say there. Maybe if I can think of maybe one or two that said, has said in the past, I, I know I need this. I'm going to go home and talk to my husband about it or my wife about it, and I'll come back and, and we'll do it. I just saw one the other day, and she said, I know I need to do it. I'm waiting for my FSA, and I'm going to come back by, and I'm going to do it. So I think eventually they realize, and I just give out all the information and let them do their research on their own. And, and if they have questions, you know, we just discuss it. And, and then it, it, they, I don't have a whole lot of pushback. I did in the right. beginning when I bought the machine and we were charging a lot to do a treatment. But now it's a lot more affordable. And I think that most people, you know, can budget for it, at least in my area. Right, right. I want to go back to something you talked about really early in the conversation. You know, you spent a few years working at Omni and then you worked in a different practice. You went back to Omni and then you decided to open cold or as I say it, you decided to open up hot um, because it was not a, <laughs> a cold start. It was something that went off really, really well. So what, how did you figure out where you were going to go? That's the first point, first place. And then you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier, you said, you know, because of the demographics you had there, you decided who you're going to be. Was it a struggle to sit down and say, I'm going to be this and not, oh, you know, I'm going to be one thing. I'm not going to be everything. Uh, you know, what, how did you go through that whole process? Well, um, I was at a point where I had met 
my future husband and I was working at Omni and I was going in to work at 6 a.m. and we were doing 40 surgeries a day and it was exhausting. So by the time I got home, I was just, um, I told him, I just said, I, I love what I do, but I'm just tired all the time. I can't imagine one day having a family and being able to work the schedule. So he just said, well, why don't you open up on your own? So really, I think he helped give me the push to do it. And then I started um, looking at locations that were uh, similar distance to where we lived. And at the time, um, where I had practiced previously was about six miles away or so. So I knew some of those patients that were in that area would still be able to find me and um, I could, you know, continue to grow in, in that area where I'd already sort of established myself. So I knew from where I had worked previously that a lot of the centers that are, you know, the shopping centers that have nail salons and uh, they have a dry cleaners and a grocery store were a great place to open up because of the foot traffic. So one day I was driving um, down this one area that I, I was familiar with, but um, I passed by a public shopping center, which is a grocery store here in Georgia. Um, for those of you who don't know, but passed by the public. Where shopping I, is a pleasure. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so I noticed that one of the Mexican restaurants that I had been to in the past had gone out of business and there was an, a one vacant um, spot open there. And it was next to a Chipotle, which we knew also had a lot of foot traffic. And so I called my husband, Larry, and I said, you're never going to believe this. There's a spot open. And then you're also never going to believe the address. It's 2020 Powell Mill Road. And he said, are you serious? And I said, this is God-given of anything. So hopefully, um, at least we had the address 2020, even if we fail. <laughs> so um, that was, it was pretty neat. So I called on it, and, and it sort of all just fell into place, and we knew that that was a great location. And, and it was also near, we did a geospatial analysis of the area, and it was near some really nice areas in Atlanta. Um, and so... Then after I did the geospatial and realized the median income and kind of knew that that's what I could build, then that's when I started looking at the population and deciding, you know, which, which route I wanted to go. And I knew that that could fit my um, high-end eyewear and dry eye uh, group of people. So um, that's really how it all sort of fell into place. So it, it was, it's been it's been great, and I've been able to really stick to my goals and my dreams, and and that's what we built. So when you were going through this um, development stage, I mean, what were some of the emotions that were coming out of you? I mean, because this is a lot of people would consider this extremely risky. I mean, it's it's a right. so what what were some of the some of the emotions you were going through with some of this part of the stuff? Well, it's interesting because I had an accountant at the time that said, oh, I wouldn't do that. One out of five businesses fail. And I just sort of, it set me back. And I, I 
called my dad and I said, dad, is this is what he told me. And my dad said the same thing. Yeah, actually, that's true. And so I thought, wow, I need to switch accountants, first of all. <laughs> and and then, of course, I can't fire my dad. So, um, but, you know, he was just giving me the, the real facts. But, yeah, it, it really was scary. And what was scarier is, in the meantime, I was getting married. And we broke ground the day that we left for our honeymoon. So, nice. so during during the wedding planning process, we were also planning to open a practice and meeting with our architect and I was ordering frames and it was a, a really busy season for sure. So, um, so it, yeah, it, it, there were a lot of emotions involved. So uh, needless to say, once we finally did break ground and we came back from our honeymoon and I knew everything was underway, I think a, a huge weight was lifted. Yeah, I can imagine, you know, um, just going through that process, not nearly to the level that you did so early on, but, you know, it, it is a daunting task to, to skin out a practice. I mean, we built from the ground up, but it's still, it's not, it's not for the lighthearted at all. And uh, it takes a lot of time. I mean, I, I'm so glad I'll never have to build a house again. I just can't tell you, you know, and I've never done that. I don't ever want to find out after doing my own building. You mentioned something that I think we need to have a little bit more explanation on, and that's geospatial analysis. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? So a lot of the um, real estate agencies actually can provide that. So I had just a general idea of what the median age of the area was and the income. But then um, when I joined Vision Source, we hadn't even opened the practice yet, but we went to, I think it was an exchange even before um, our doors were open at that point, And we signed up to do a geospatial analysis, which was pretty amazing. They took all these data points within the area and, and we could determine what people were spending on eye care in that area, on contact lenses, on glasses, um, just, the, just the demographics of the area and the patient population that I was serving. So I knew, you know, my top five types of patients. And um, so I think anybody that's opening a practice should do that first thing because it really was beneficial and I've been able to make sure that we're still tailoring to those people. Now, since you did your first geospatial analysis, have you done consequent ones to see if anything's changed or is that something you just do one time and you're done? No, this year I did another one just to see if I was still on track. And thank goodness I was. I was very thankful that, you know, we were still searching for the right patients and really trying to reach those those patients and and what we're doing, I think, as far as like digital online advertising and marketing to those patients is working. That you bring up something else that you've uh, <laughs> sort of I've become a fan of yours of is, is how uh, – how much you put into your digital marketing and how much of an expert you've become at that. I know you didn't come at that all by yourself, but how did you go through that process to decide this is how I'm going to market to my, I mean, I know part of it had to do with your geospatial, but how did you change your marketing from uh, how you did things after looking at your geospatial and then the results that you get with it? Well, so one of our, it's interesting because they do, when you do geospatial analysis, they do sort of 
uh, name these, these patient populations. So one of the patient populations that we serve um, is American royalty. And so I thought, okay, American royalty is the top 1% of the country um, as far as income, and they're generally people, certain age group, I think it's like 55 to 65. And um, so I thought, wow, how do we get those patients? So we really focused on certain frame lines that would a patient may be looking for um, a name of a, of a certain frame line. So I will track how patients are coming to our website and we have you know, our top five frame lines listed on our website. And so we can actually see how many clicks each frame line is getting. And so we know, okay, great, Tom Ford is really way up there. We know that we're, you know, getting a lot of looks with this page. So let's keep up the page and let's um, refresh it and, and really see if we can continue to attract those patients and throw out digital advertising for it. Um, and so we found that we get patients from really all over that are looking for a certain frame line that maybe they can't find anywhere else. We've had patients come from South Carolina, Alabama for certain frames. So um, as far as that goes, we really market, when it comes to digital marketing, um, high-end frame lines as well as the dry eye. So I think dry eye has been able to, I've put myself on the top of the search engine optimization um, with the term dry eye specialist, dry eyes. So if some patient's Googling dry eye specialist in Atlanta, I'll pop up first. So those types of things is what I've invested in when it comes to digital marketing. Um, when I first opened, I didn't do any mailers. Um, I, I really have been focusing on online everything. And for me and my population, I know that that is what works best. I've got very you know, high-tech savvy patients around in the area. So I focused mainly on that. And I was actually just speaking with a colleague of mine who's in a similar area to me. And he said, you know, when we first opened, we really – wanted to just send out mailers and see what would happen. And he said, we got nothing from it. It was just a waste. And I said, well, you have to try different things just to see at least and know. But for me, digital advertising has worked the best. And so you started out with that, but right off the bat, I mean, you just sort of just, that worked out well. I mean, you know, and so how, what kind of things have you tried? I mean, I don't want to make you sound like Wonder Woman here, but I mean, what kind of things have you tried that eh, didn't quite work out so well? Well, I actually had a patient that worked for Pandora, and so he came in um, and said, hey, you know, you should do an ad on Pandora. And I said, well, actually, I'm really trying to build my dry eye patients. Um, and he said, yeah, that would be great. Let me get you in contact with someone at Pandora. So she came by, and we, we set that up, and I paid $1,000 a month to do that, and it just was a flop. I, I might have gotten one patient, but... Um, it, it, it turns out with Pandora, I might not have been marketing at the right time to the right people. Um, now we know that dry eye affects all ages pretty much. And at that time, I, I thought it only affected women, basically men, perimenopausal women of a certain age de demographic. And that's what we targeted mostly on Pandora. So Maybe now at this point, knowing what I know, it could, it, we, we could blast out more ads that would work a little bit better. Um, but I've just learned so much 
from really the people behind my website and my search engine optimization and how to really get people to look at certain pages on your website. And um, that's just been over time just by learning it. And um, it's just been interesting to me. So I think I've grown in, to be, you know, more of this marketing person now. So. And uh, it, do you find any enjoyment? What kind of enjoyment are you getting out of it? Or is this something you just sort of do because you have to do it? Well, at first, I, I just thought, I need to know about this because I don't know enough. I'm not internet savvy enough to really understand it all. And um, and I have three millennials that work for me, so I'm still asking them questions all the time. Hey, what? how do I do this? How do I post on social media? I think that's where I sort of am, am lacking is it social media. But as far as digital ads and search engine optimization, and I, I actually enjoy it. So in the beginning, I would meet with my search engine optimization team every month and we'd go over it. Hey, is this working? What are we doing? And now it's quarterly because I know that we're on track and we're really tailoring what we want people to be looking for when it comes to us and really what the patient's perception is of us. So um, I've enjoyed it because I know now I can look and see, okay, what are the, what's the patient looking for when they come to our office? And then I can look and see, you know, kind of determine, okay, what's this patient's journey through my practice going to be like? You know, if they're looking, if they're looking at our practice because they, they're interested in dry eye, I can figure that out. I can see if they called and made that appointment and what they were researching on our page. And so um, that, that has just been really neat to be able to really tailor the experience for the patient. So um, that it, it's, on all fronts, it's been it's been great learning more and more about that. And I think there's a lot of doctors that have their employees do their marketing behind the scenes. But I think it's for me, it was really important to learn it on the front end and know exactly what they were doing and and how it was working. And and now that I have my my mind wrapped you know really wrapped around it, I can probably delegate some of those things to my employees, but I think it's really important for us as doctors to understand since it's such a digital world now. Yeah. Um, okay. So you just brought up something I want to sort of dig into because I've just gone through a program recently that's uh, interesting and that's sort of talking about delegation a little bit. How do you go about delegation with your team? Uh, how do you set up, things that you're, well, I don't want to get into things you will delegate and won't delegate, but how do you go about the process of delegating with your team? I think the, Larry and I call it the, the three P's when you're thinking about opening a practice or you're, you are a practice owner. You have to invest in your people, your products, and your process. Process is a huge thing for us. So um, protocols and processes and just um, having meetings frequently so everyone is on the same page and getting the group together um, really helps. As far as delegating, I've not always been the best about it because I want things done my way, but I think I've been able to, to teach the, especially my technicians, how to think like I think. Um, and so that's helped me to be able to delegate those things. And then I think just gaining trust of the employees and, and also um, them trusting me. We all really have now together as a, a collective group been on the same page, but it hasn't always been that way. 
it, it's been that's been the hardest thing I think being a business owner is just finding the right employees, investing in the right people, and finding people that are going to be able to really implement what your goals are. Right. Um, the, the program I just went through is a, there's a guy named Michael Hyatt. He's up in around Nashville, Tennessee, and he hangs out with the Dave Ramsey crowd and the Don Miller crowd and those kind of guys. And I just went to a program this past weekend and I've got my desk strewn with all these things that I, I brought back with me. And part of it was going through the process of the delegation task. And, and one of the things he has is his, his five levels of delegation, which I thought was incredible. And I'll see if I can get a link to put on the podcast about this as well. But the five levels of delegation was the first level of delegation is, okay, um, I want you to do something. And I've already figured out how to do it. This is exactly how you do it. Don't change anything. Do it exactly like I tell you. This is how you have to get it done. That's level one. Level two is I need to have this thing done. I haven't done any research about it yet, but I need to make sure that I'm the one that makes the decision, but I don't have time to do the research. What I want you to do is to go out and do the research for me bring that back and let's talk about what's going to be the way we're going to do this. That's level two. Level three is I need to have this thing done and I haven't done any of the research yet. So what I want you to do is go out and do the research for me. And then I want you to come back and tell me what your top one or two opinions is, is the way we should do this. You give me the advice of how you think we should proceed. Level four is I have this thing that needs to get done. There's not really been a whole lot of research done about it. I got to look up a couple ideas, but you know, here's what I've done so far. I'd like you to do some research on this, come up with the, what you think is the best thing to do, and then do it. And then come back and tell me what you did. And you can already figure out what level five is. Level five is, hey, I need you to get this done. Can you just go do that? I don't care how you do it. Just get it done because I know you can handle it. I trust you. You know, you're the, I wouldn't have had you here if I didn't trust you. So can you just go ahead and take care of that? And if you could, in those five levels, that has helped me tremendously in the last six months when I'm delegating to my team. Cause now I can say to them, and they've kind of learned it. I can say, I got a level one delegation thing that needs to get done. I don't have to go through explaining <laughs> all that stuff to them. I can just tell them this is a level X delegation and it makes it a lot simpler. Uh, so it, yeah, it, but I would love to say this, my idea, I mean, Michael Hyatt is a, is brilliant when it came to, to doing this and, are there people that you go to for influence and advice about how you do what you do? Of course. Um, I'm a big podcast listener. So um, lately it's been John Maxwell. And um, and I think at the last podcast I was listening to, he said, you just want to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And I think you, I've heard you say that before. I've heard Mike Rothschild say that before. Um, so I think from the beginning, I've always done that and just sort of listened to my colleagues that did it well and knew already um, what the pitfalls were. And so I learned from them. And um, so, yes, I, I definitely listen to people that know a lot more than I know. So that always, um, anytime I'm, I, I'm always trying to better myself by just learning more and, um, and I just know that there's people out there that are smarter than me. So I'm going to try to, you know, copy what they do. So um, it's taken me some time to learn that, but it has worked out well so far. 
one of the things that you and I have is a group of peers that we both are involved with, uh, a study group, so to speak. And we're going to sort of give our dear friend and idol, Mike Rothschild, a great American, a plug here on his Leadership OD program. And what has that done for you in the times that you've been in that program? That has impacted me so much really since the beginning. Um, as you were talking about employees, I, I, I was thinking back to a time at one of the Leadership OD meetings where I heard Amir Kosnevis say, you know, you just, here's a few ways to help empower your employees. And at the time, I think I was two years in practice and, and I was really down and out trying to figure out how do I, how do I help, you know, really get a, a good team going and a, a good morale in the office. And, um, and it just was beneficial just to listen to see how other people were doing it. And I just remember Amir giving examples of things that would help, you know, empower them. And just so I, I went back to my office. I think that after that one weekend together and, and immediately we sat down and I started a little flip chart and I said, okay, let's, let's talk about some things that we need to change in the office. And, Instead of me always throwing out the idea and what we're going to do and this and that, it was more of, okay, I need to be quiet and sit back and let my employees be empowered, let them speak up, let them create the protocol. And when they do that, there's more ownership there, and then there's more participation among the group. So I have just learned so much from all of you and um, have really just been so grateful to be a part of the group and um, just from every little thing, and also just knowing that I'm I'm not alone, and um, and even being part of Vision Source as a whole has been wonderful for me because you don't feel like you're alone on your own little island in private practice. You have so many other people that you can go to for questions, and so I knew being a part of Leadership OD and being a part of Vision Source was something that I just had to do, and I'm thankful that I did. Yeah, that's that's the thing I think that probably has helped me out more in my practice life than I think anything I've ever had is is some of the peers that I get to hang out with. And I know a lot of it had to do with vision source probably more than anything. You know, Mike and I have a relationship very long just from GOA. And, and again, that's a, another thing. I mean, being involved in our state association and the way we have has made it really easy to to have – people to speak into me and to, you know, give me advice that I never would have gotten any other way. And I can't imagine what my career would have been like had I just tried to do this all by myself. I mean, it just, you know, I, I can, I would probably be staying and naked out in the middle of the street with, you know, nothing to my <laughs> name at all, just because I, I had just tried something on my own and, you know, mm-hmm. but thank goodness, uh, thank God that somebody spoke into me and said, you know, hey, maybe you shouldn't try that. Maybe you should try this instead. That might be a, a good idea. I mean, you know, with people like Walt West and Bobby Christensen and uh, those people to say to me early on, you know, this is this is maybe a, a better idea, you know, in a nice, kind way of saying it, you know. Um, but, you know, I, it is just so flattering to have people like you, too. I mean, because I, I said earlier, I can't think of the name of the piece, uh, how, many, how many pieces of technology I bought because you and Larry <laughs> – on the floor of an of a exhibit hall said, no, you need to go get that. It's, it's really, I'm telling you, you know, and I've never been sorry that I've done it. Uh, and, oh, and I don't okay. want to ignore, I don't want to ignore the uh, quote, sort of the little bit of it too. I, um, you know, 
I got to know you about the same time I got to know your husband, but I didn't know the two of you at the same time as being the two of you, which was kind of neat. So can you give us a little bit of background on your husband and his, his connection to eye care? Yeah, so um, it, it's really a, an interesting story how we met. Um, I was working in a prac in the other uh, private practice actually, and he was a, a sales rep for Alcon at the time, selling contact lenses. So he started in the industry, and he sort of worked his way around and had several different um, jobs within the field, selling equipment and. Um, he sold devices and now, and then he was in pharmaceuticals. So he sort of seen, run the gamut in eye care. And so um, now he still is in pharmaceutical sales, but no longer calling on um, optometry. So the, the neat thing about us is that he has set foot in a hundred plus offices with all sorts of different models and um, just just totally different um, practices. And so he's seen it all. And that for sure has helped me whittle down what I wanted to be you know, after we, we he, he's been my, he's the, the little push on my shoulder that tells me at the exchange to buy things. So you can thank him because he'll reiterate it. <laughs> And so, yeah. Um, yeah, he he has no fear, which is probably good because I would probably be less of an early adopter if it if it wasn't for him. But he he has a vision as well, and so it really helped me. But I think I think him just calling on all those practices and and seeing what's out there really helped me figure out what I did and didn't want to do. Um, so that's sort of how we came about, and. Um, and he, I'll never forget, I think he told you this too. He said, you know, I, I can walk into an office and tell which doctors pay attention to their staff. And that has stuck with me, as I'm sure it stuck with you, and he said that as well. But it's true. Um, you really can see a disconnect when things, it just looks, looks and feels different in a practice where there is that disconnect among the doctor and the staff. So. That was actually one of the best pieces of advice I think I've ever gotten from anyone uh, when it comes to how, how to really, truly make your practice great. And uh, the, the way I sort of remember him saying it, too, he said that, you know, those practices that actively engage their team are, are markedly more successful than those that don't. And those that don't, you can tell that they are literally actively trying to avoid every single person on their team and just get away from it all. And, and it's killing their business. And uh, that has, just like you said, I mean, that has been one of the single best pieces of advice I think I've ever gotten. I wish I had heard it way a long time ago. Instead of four years ago. Uh, Andrea, this has been an absolutely fabulous uh, time I've spent with you, and I, I'm so flattered that you spent some time with me to talk about this. Uh, is there anything that we need to sort of, anything you can think of you'd like to say before we finish up here at all? Oh, I just, it's really just been an honor to be a part of this and get to know you and get to know, you know, our whole, all of our group. And, um, you know, I, I think, 
it's as far as optometry goes, the neat thing is it, it, there's so many different avenues that you can grow your practice with that um, I've just been thankful that I've been able to to do what I've, I have done and and you know still incorporate the medical model and it's I think our profession really just has something so special compared to other professions that are out there, um, especially having a, a retail side of things. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm thankful for our group and, and the growth that, you know, we have as, as a whole. And um, just that there's so many advocates out there for us in optometry. And I just thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And I, I can tell you, we're all better for having you on the podcast today. So thank you so much. Thank you. I forgot to hit play. We did this whole thing without. I'm joking. I'd actually study the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs>